Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So last week, I spent a fair amount of time reading accounts of what went down with Burger Records, and I want to take a moment to reemphasize two items. Um, and first of all, just to note, like content warning for all of this around um, sexual violence, of course. So first of all, my first note is that obviously this is totally terrible, but also this is totally not surprising. Literally, this happens all the time. It happens in every single city. It's, it, this, it's just that it's coming out. That's really what's happening here. It happens everywhere, everywhere. My second note here is that false reports of sexual assault are very, very uncommon. So not only is it not surprising that this is happening, but it's also super common that that people just are experiencing it. And there are so many barriers to reporting that they then do not do so. And so when someone reports, it means that they the likelihood of it happening is very, very high. So basically, two to eight percent of sexual assaults are falsely reported. It's very, very small amount. Um, and I'm including this because every single time a report comes out about a musician or someone in the industry committing abuse, there are like eight million of their buddies who come out and they're like, well, they were always nice to me. They never said anything weird to me. And, you know, once again, it takes a lot to speak out about sexual assault. There are like eight million reasons also why people choose not to report. And, you know, including not being believed, but also whatever intersecting identities they might have that makes them not want to get involved with the uh, with the system. So there's that. You know, I don't personally know any of the musicians on Burger Records. I don't know any of the survivors involved, but just know that this is something that happens everywhere. So, you know, when I was working with Riot, we once received five reports of abuse in the Providence music scene by five different people in a period of one month. Like it just comes out all the time. And, you know, when we started this Changing Our Tune project about um, preventing gender-based violence in the music scene in Providence, this is where this came from, was was because we knew that this was something that was happening so often. In my previous work, I was a violence prevention educator, and I had done some work around this specifically on, you know, my, my graduate work. And I, I think that it's just important to, to note three major issues here and three major things when, when people are thinking about preventing sexual violence. So first of all, believe survivors, right? We need to listen to them. We need to believe them. We need to support them. That is tantamount. Second, just ending toxic masculinity. I know I'm making it sound like it's easy, but you know there are so many ways, and I think about this as a mother to a, a son, uh, a four-year-old, cis boy. I, I think about all the different ways that the culture is you know, encouraging him to engage in this behavior and I want to think about the ways that we can prevent this from happening. Um, it's so, so important. We don't want to stop socializing boys to believe that toughness, sexual conquest, those are the things that make them men. And last but in no way least is ending rape culture. So ending the normalization of sexual violence and abuse through objectification, through belief in rape myths, through victim blaming, and obviously a lack of accountability for abusers, which is another piece. So, you know, cis men are oftentimes the ones in power in a scene. So like they're like the super popular musicians. They're the ones who are like running venues, booking shows, blah, blah, blah. If you are a cis man, then it's like particularly important that you are taking this power and using it for good and speaking out to change harmful behaviors, right? So like bystander intervention, like, you know, making comments where you can, whether in person, whether online, it changes the norms. And it also just, it's able to really show people how they should be behaving. It's it's very, very important. And obviously, like, huge shout out to the folks um, and survivors who are speaking out. It's not an easy thing to do. The folks at Lured by Burger Records, the folks at Submissions for LA Musicians, all of the folks who are speaking out right now, it's it's a hard thing to do. So thank you for, for that. I want to also note that after the interview, I'm going to be sharing the Music Gear Bechdel Test, which I adapted from the Bechdel Test for Movies, looking at women's representation. And I personally believe that representation is such a huge part of rape culture and that like, if we can improve representation, it's, it's, it's one way that we can make real change. So stick around after the interview to read more about that and I will, or to I listen to more about that, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. All right, so 
super psyched to share with you my conversation with Mindy Abovitz, who is the fabulous editor at Tom Tom Magazine and producer of the Hit Like a Girl drum contest. And I remember the first time hearing about Tom Tom and being so excited that someone had thought to create such a magazine. It was like such a huge deal. And I remember also the first time like seeing it on a shelf at Guitar Center. And I was like, this is amazing. Like things are happening. So yeah. So thanks to Mindy for really like getting in there and doing it. It's so much work. I can't even imagine. But yeah, Mindy continues like she's crushing it on Tom Tom's drum lessons online, which is called Chops TV. And they feature new drummers every day. So definitely check that out. It is really rad. So, all right. With that, here is my interview with me. Mindy, welcome to Midriff. Thank you for having me. Of course. What a beautiful day to be talking about drums. <laughs> Every day for me, even when That's it's right. rainy and snowy out. <laughs> drums don't stop. They just keep going. Mm -mm. They're like the post office, except the post office might stop. <laughs> uh, there's a really good song um, called Drums Keep Pounding a Rhythm to My Brain. I think that's what it's called. If we can that have, sounds familiar. We should have it play at some point. That would be dreamy. That would be good. I'll see if I can get that in there. <laughs> uh, can you do us all a favor and uh, introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Yeah. My name is Mindy Abovitz Monk. I go by she and her. Those are my pronouns. Um, I started playing bass when I was a teenager and introduced to Riot Girl in the 90s. And I then graduated to a drum set which my best friend bought me. When I was in my early 20s. And yeah, I've been playing drums ever since, programming drum machines. And then about a decade ago, I started a magazine dedicated to female drummers. Casual. Cash. Yep. Uh, that's super a nice cash. friend to buy. Yeah, super cash. That's a nice friend to buy you a drum kit. Yeah, she's my best friend still today. And people have asked how I got my start on the kit. And I was just gravitating towards every drum set around me in Gainesville, where I was living at the time, going to University of Florida. And she just noticed that I loved the drums. And so for my 21st birthday, that I think it was $300 percussion plus kit that she bought me, which like today feels like a $2,000 gift, you know, $300 when we were yeah. all making like $450 an hour or whatever we were making. It was insane. It floored me. I think it's the only gift I've ever cried about when I got Rightly so. That's so nice. Oh really my God. Nice. That's so nice. Really, really nice. And she also, she gifted me a drum set. She set it up in her house, which she declared our new practice space. And she said, and I'm your bandmate. So I went from having nothing to a drum set, a practice space and a band. Oh my God. I'm going to cry right now. That's so good. Oh, <laughs> and what was that band about? How did that what was that band about? Um, the band was about five of us, um, mm -hmm. all women who were relatively new to our instrument, except my friend Andy, who uh, was a really good guitar player. And she, I don't know why she was like playing with us, but um, <laughs> we had a recorder, a bass, a keyboard, drum set, and guitar. Recorder. That was my, our other childhood best friend we roped into this. Um, <laughs> she was like, I don't play anything at all. I have a recorder. We're like, perfect. <laughs> I hope you like ran it through a distortion and a delay. We were not you just, there yet. That's fine. Straight up record. I'm not even sure we mic'd her properly. It held up on its own. It would have been instrument. a really cool band now. Um, and depending on who you asked, the band was called the Lydia Pinkham Experience or Ripped R.I.P.T. If you asked me, we were called Ripped R.I.P.T. That's a fabulous band name. <laughs> I came up uh, with it when everyone else was down with the Lydia Bingham experience. That's a lot. It's a, just a lot in your mouth. I feel like it's ripped a is a little bit. Say. It's a little more direct. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, though, our I... merch was like ripped. I just like if you ripped it, that was our merch. <laughs> See, that's genius. Thank you. I like you have to have, to have the band name in mind when you're, you know, like <laughs> thinking about your future merch goals. All the merch. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag merch, merch goals. Yes. <laughs> Oh my God, that makes me so happy. So that was your first kit. What 
what are you playing mostly now? Like, what are you, what's, what's your go-to? Well, I'm playing my studio mates, gorgeous, uh, sparkle, slingerland jazz kit. Um, Rad. And then I share a practice space with uh, Sarah Landau, the Julie Ruin. And so I'm playing mm-hmm. her kit whenever I'm in my practice space. And my, I have two kits, but they're mostly packed away and I don't have my dream kit. So it's not like I'm going to like, yeah, I, I would like a DW. You're fine with what's around. Yeah. yeah cool. I'll play with what's around. Currently mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in um, acquiring more digital uh, drum machines. What, what do you use for, for digital drum machines right now? I started with the Dr. Rhythm and I feel like I'm like mm-hmm. full circle coming back. I want the TR-808, the new... Mm. From the, from the Boss Boutique collection, I just want to get as many vintage or vintage remake drum machines as I could possibly get my hands on. That's rad. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I have <laughs> this. <laughs> Yay! Uh, yeah, so I just want every single drum machine. Yeah, like that. I have this one here. This is a Akai XR20, which is current. I had I had the Boss like probably in high school and this is my thing I just cannot for the life of me figure out how to sequence anything like I want it please show me oh my god it's like like my doctor rhythm by the way it's very similar to a doctor rhythm I think yeah just like functionally this one I think in particular has a lot of like more like hip-hop sounding beats Mm. so I think it has it or that's where the sounds came from with somebody who is making hip-hop beats so Anyway, yes. Uh, so that's that's rad. Uh, so how long have you been doing more of like the digital uh, drum stuff? Well, um, I started acoustic drumming and digital programming at the same exact time, hmm. um, pretty much. And for the last like six or seven years, I, I haven't really pushed myself very hard in music at all. I'm just like, a, I need to come up. Have with you been like, busy? Yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> uh, when I started Tom Tom, it I was I was definitely making a decision, and I didn't realize it at the time. I was deciding to become someone who cheerleads and trumps other drummers rather than being a drummer. I was no longer able to go on tour. I was no longer able to take serious band offers. That happened within the first year or two, and that was fine. I just found myself committing to the magazine more than to my own drum career. And so mm. I play for fun. I've always played for fun. I still play for fun. Do you have like a particular practice routine that you that you engage in or? I do. Like, I, I mean, I'm a metronome person. So mm-hmm. I like to practice new sticking patterns. I like mm-hmm. to, um, I'm using a lot of what I'm learning on Chops TV right now to mm-hmm. um, What's myself. Chops TV, Mindy? Chops TV is Tom Tom's quarantine project. Um, ever since we all got kicked out of the office and we're home and we can't be with each other, a few of us organized a weekly free drum lesson and Q&A with a different female or GNC drum instructor, beatmaker producer from around the world. So I personally am hosting them, which means I am um, I'm, I'm doing the Q&A with the drummer, but I'm also there for their lesson and it has been really fun. There's actually too much for me to work on now. Um, <laughs> That's actually really great. It's like almost like an accidental <laughs> learning experience. <laughs> yeah, there's so much cool stuff that I've been wanting to learn my entire drum career. That's like being, that's just falling in my lap. And these lessons are short, but they're, so, they're dense. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a workout. You you're taught how to do a really good rep on something, and then you got to go do the work. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like a daily thing. So I'm being taught like I've already learned like 30 different workouts. You know. That's wild. Yeah. yeah, that's rad. How long is each one generally? Each lesson's about 15 to 20 minutes. And then there's a 15 okay. to 20 minute Q&A. Today was Madam Gandhi um, showing us how to incorporate sensory percussion, which are these drum triggers onto the kit. So they can be really specific classes. And then they're like beginning tabla classes or mm-hmm. um, how to play seven, eight. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's I mean that that feels like it just like a good little like snippet like you're like just a little little bit take that and you can work on that for like however long until you get it and it's it just seems like it's nice because I feel like sometimes it's if it's not specific it ends up being too much which is great yeah, and that's how I learn I feel like if someone teaches me too much I can't my brain just starts to like 
shut down and mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, I'm not inspired anymore. I'm overwhelmed. And so we were working on making these like really bite size to where you walk away with one, two or three pieces of information to work on. And if you want to continue studying with that instructor, you can. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it opens a new portal in your brain and you're now like, well, wait, I want drum triggers on my kit or mm-hmm. I've never thought about Ableton and ESPDSX and all these things. Yeah. Or cool. I now know how to count like triplets. Right. In my head. Right. I don't know. Right. It's very like quantifiable. Like I learned this thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, As far as like your general experience with gender and and identities and the music gear industry or music industry more broadly, presumably you have some to share uh, or something that led you to creating TomTom. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Everything I do is about gender and music. It might have something to do with my upbringing, which I have talked about before. I grew up in a modern Orthodox community, um, and in that community, Jewish, in that community, there was a lot of gender separation. It just is. It's just part of the religion. And my family's predominantly male. I have two older brothers, lots of uh, boy cousins, um, and ob- the obvious, like, matriarch grandma, but there was an overriding theme in, when I was a kid of you can't, you can do that or you can't do that because you're a girl, mm-hmm. including my bat mitzvah, which I think was a huge turning point for me. And I didn't even realize it back then, but I really wanted to read from the Torah and I really wanted to have mm. the same kind of bar mitzvah that my brothers had. But mm-hmm. instead I had a party, which is very typical for girls. And I dressed as an alien at my bat mitzvah that was like, <laughs> There was no question in my mind I was going to be an alien. I I didn't question it for years later either. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, right. Okay. So there's that was like a turning point for me, I think. And then I, I ended up going to a public school and immediately shaving my head and skateboarding and listening to Riot Girl. And like, it kind of all came together for me as an early teen mm-hmm. where I became the person that I am now. Mm-hmm. And that person really wanted to see girls and women be told and see and have the possibility that anything that they want to do is possible and that it's an equal playing field. Now, Judaism by no means is trying to create a gender imbalance, but my experience of it was that I was not able to study the Torah and read it, which is a holy script that we all look up to and want to be a part mm-hmm. of. So, Anyway, so that was my early experience. And then I have every other experience. Like my brothers are geniuses. They liked to like trick me and tell me that I, you know, like give me some kind of crazy math or science question. And then (laughs) if I didn't know the answer, they're like, you're so dumb. You know, so that was like, (laughs) oh, yes, there's a lot of that. And I think I just wanted to be as good as or better than the boys at everything really mm-hmm. early on. And then drums just happens to be a passion of mine. So that's my personal experience. And I see everything through that lens. I'm incredibly sensitive, sensitive to gender um, imbalances, racial imbalances, sexuality, creed, life um, ability levels, notoriety. Like I'm always thinking about who's not included or who's been told they can't, or they can't do it as good as, and, that obsession has worked in my favor, I think, within TomTom because that's what I work on. I work on mm-hmm. trying to balance the media representation of specifically female and GNC drummers, beatmakers, and producers. But by default, I get to talk about much larger subjects like the ethics and morals of media representation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a thousand plus of my own personal examples of what it's like being a woman in the music industry, both as a drummer, a performer, and also as a professional in the industry who's like running a magazine slash selling advertising slash whatever you name it, directing a a drumming contest. Um, And I felt when I started TomTom that I was ready to enter the belly of the beast. I had enough built up anger and drive and clarity and power and resources of information that I felt like I can now go tackle this. I'm old enough, wise enough, Mm -hmm. and I have a deep enough community to step in and challenge the existing boys club. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing. And that's what I'm still doing. How old were you when you started Tom Tom? 29. Mm -hmm. 29. It was, I was 29. I was like, 
you know, in the way back of my head, I'd already gone through Riot Girl and I've already done Rock Camp for Girls and I had not done, I was currently doing it and I was in all these bands and I was thinking like, cool, everything is better. You know, everything has gotten better. Look how great it is. It was great in my world. And then I stepped back for five seconds and realized that Riot Girl was still incredibly important because the message was ringing really true 15 years later or whatever. Mm-hmm. So true 15 years later. And a number of other things going on around me alerted me to the fact that not much had changed. In fact, it might have gotten slightly worse since I was. 15, 14 years old. And it felt like it was my responsibility at that point. Like, really, who else was going to help us out if it wasn't me who had already kind of been through it mm-hmm. and was going through it? And now I had access, I had tools, I knew how to build a blog. And I knew, I knew loads of incredible female drummers through Rock Camp, through throwing shows at my house, through touring. It was like, if it wasn't going to be me, who was it going to be? Mm-hmm. someone exactly like me but I was like cool all right I'm gonna try it I'm gonna start this out and then yeah and then like I thought might happen everyone helped out mm-hmm. right and you now have uh, a number of folks who work for you as well right quarantine has kind of made things difficult <laughs> well <laughs> I have to be honest right that is that is fair yes <laughs> um we used to yeah um, yeah 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 no we're currently struggling if you're listening to this a year from now and you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the coronavirus <laughs> of 2020. Um, yeah, things are really difficult right now, but we're working on, um, by we, I mean, I sell sponsorships and advertising and I'm working on building that up through what we've got going on right now. We do have staff members. They're very, very freelance at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When, when you're working with uh, sponsors, like, do you get a lot of pushback from folks or are there like, are they on board? Like, what's that experience been like? Mm, all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I thought so much about this that it might be something I take to my grave where I'll still be like, like the last thought I'll have is like, whatever happened with that Sojin package <laughs> or something? Like I'm constantly uh-huh. thinking about. So initially I came onto the scene pretty aggressively demanding that we get coverage as real musicians um my argument is that we already play and we're already buying your products so why aren't you advertising to us and why aren't Mm -hmm. we in your ads um i came at this very aggressively as you might imagine most like the uh, the boys club self-described boys club that is the drum industry does not like being told what they've done wrong or who they've left out and they definitely don't want to be told it by a young woman Mm mm-hmm And so that was what the scene was initially. Um, A few folks, like I think, looked at TomTom like a breath of fresh air. And the majority of the industry was like, "Uh uh-oh, can they go away? Like, who are these people? (laughs) Are they coming back next Uh year to NAMM? Like, why why are they still here? And so I had a really lucky break. It was year three of TomTom. The CFO of, sorry, COO of Guitar Center, Laura Taylor, was heading up the Women's in Music Initiative in Guitar Center. And she mm-hmm. specifically requested Tom Tom in all the shops nationwide. Mm. So I had leverage. Um, distribution is huge when you're selling marketing. And so I came back to NAM with a distribution deal. And that was through Hal Leonard. Everybody knows Hal Leonard. Mm-hmm. And then I landed Barnes & Noble. And then I landed, you know, uh, Virgin Atlantic airlines so the, i sort of figure it out and play the game and yeah. if you play the game they can't ignore you um selling advertising is the single hardest thing i've ever done in my life and it still remains incredibly difficult because even after you've convinced them which takes forever and often they have all these biases or they're you know what for whatever reason they're they can't work with you because they're already working with modern drummer or drum you know mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. um but even after you break through that what you then are up against is actually being relevant, creating relevant marketing for these people. They want to sell their products. Right. So firstly, I'm like, hey, there's this, this is a market you've never spoken to. And some of them take interest in that. Now I've been around for a decade. I have to come up with a really creative, interesting, timely piece of marketing for them. Mm-hmm. Or else why would they care? So it's a very hard job. Yeah, that's it seems <laughs> highly challenging <laughs> for sure. You had. You had said at one point, I think I saw you had said that you were looking at like 
increasing the percentage of female drummers in the next 10 years by like 50%. How is that? How do you measure something like that? Where do you get that? This feels like a very nerd, nerdy question, but I'm like, I feel like that's a question that people might ask. It's a great question. The principal way that folks have been defining who are, who's purchasing drums, so that therefore who's drumming, is by gaining industry research from major music retailers like the Tele Center mm-hmm. um, or Sweetwater. Now, if people don't tell the truth about their gender or there's, you know, obviously we have more than the binary Mm-hmm. Or if they, or if they don't skip the question, then we really don't know how to answer that. Um, we've been looking for other metrics as well in terms of asking educators how many of their students break down gender-wise mm. and what that gender breakdown is. But gathering data is really important. I'm still looking for better ways to gather more accurate data because we're also not just concerned about the United States, which is most people's right. like data collection happens like by country. I'd love to get a global that the increase of female GNC drummer female producers percussionists and I think that number we would like to increase by 50% was a goal I was just kind of setting quite high I thought yeah. at the time and I do believe in like setting really high goals um and making demands I don't like know when you set up. that goal it could have been like yesterday so you know uh, was, you still have enough years ago yeah okay <laughs> I've got the rest of my life I'm hoping that's what I need I, I, I feel like even if you did it even if you didn't accomplish it for the rest of your life it would still be at a, a quality uh goal yeah but I have been I have been feeling like you know Malcolm Gladwell's book I think it's the book I can I say uh tipping point Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. I was like, bling, bling, bling. No, it's tipping point. <laughs> in tipping point. He talks about this moment where everyone kind of like goes to bed and wakes up, and the whole world has shifted. I've been looking for that moment. I would like to just kind of like pepper this idea in as many places as possible around the world, many institutions, many just kind of like whispering in people's ears that. It's okay for girls and women and GNC folks to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I hope that one day I'm waiting for it. Like all the factors get pushed together and then we all wake up and it's okay. Please. Please. <laughs> Please. Uh, oh my God. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that makes me think, you know, it, it, you've, you've taught at uh, Girls Rock Camps before. And every time we had have a ladies rock camp or adult rock camp, always the first instrument to, to fill up was always drums. Mm. Not the not the case at the younger camps. Mm. That's funny. You want to sp- speak to that at all? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I can speak to that. And obviously this is 100% just my opinion. I believe that girls are taught from a young age that our importance lies a lot in our appearance and Oftentimes, when we're thinking about which musician would she be, it would often be the singer. We're encouraged to sing and do pretty things often, um, which includes being a front person. We're not pushed to play bass, keys, guitar, definitely not pushed to play, play the drums when we're little. So if you're entering rock camp and you're someone who may follow the rules more, you may think, I should be the singer in this band. This is what, this is how I'll get my name known uh, as a, as a girl, as a woman. It's like these are the behaviors you've seen modeled. And then I think once we are adults, we know it's all bullshit. We are fully aware of the <laughs> fact that we have been brainwashed to think the important thing to do is to be pretty and in the front and make pretty sounds with our mouth. And while that fits really nicely for some of us, for most of us, it doesn't. Most of us are meant to be bass players or cajon players and flautists. And often, yeah, we're not pushing that direction. So I think you see that with the girls who aren't yet able to think for themselves. And this isn't all girls, but this is like, I've definitely seen it at rock camp. I've seen Mm -hmm. them. I also see girls at rock camp throughout the week kind of make the realization that they want to be a bass player or a drummer mm-hmm. People are like, you come to camp right thinking, i am supposed to be a singer and they leave camp thinking i could really be anything but it takes right. them that time to see it throughout that week 
Right. Or they become like drum or bass curious throughout the week. Like they'll be switching instruments or whatever. And yeah. like, actually, that was really fun, you know. And I think you can see also a, the reverse where somebody who's a, like a drummer, they want to sit in the back. They don't want the attention is like, mm, I wonder if I could sing, you know, like I feel like you have both of those. But I think that the drum thing is like a particular thing as well, based on the socialization, as you're saying. Yeah, it's very interesting to watch kids make decisions because you can almost see in their face when they're making a decision that they want to do versus mm. what they've been told or what they've seen. Yeah. They, they feel like they're breaking a rule. And at rock camp, we make sure they know there are no rules, right? Right. Not those rules, at least. <laughs> and so you watch them sort of like gravitate towards the kit, be really loud, take up a lot of space. And all of a sudden, some of these kids transform. But so then for for the adults, they've they've gone through all of that. They've had enough time of people telling them what they can and can't do. And they're like, here's the thing. I've wanted to do this my entire life. And now I'm just going to hit these drums as hard as I can and get it all out. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it is wild. It's really cool. And it, um, drums and feminism go hand in hand in a way that I don't know that every other instrument has such a direct mm. relationship with. And I think that's because the drums have been so heavily gendered, possibly more so than any other instrument, drum set specifically. Yeah. And there, there is like a tone of rebellion to playing the kit that us adult women are fully aware of. And so if you're going to start playing at 50, there's no question that you're doing something slightly off kilter still today. Yeah. So you you had had a master's in media studies, yes? That was an accident, though. That How? Fully an accident. Um, so I had moved to New York City and really loved the New School for Social Research, which is where I got my media studies master's. I picked a media studies degree just kind of like randomly. I wanted to get into audio production, and there was audio production tracks offered with these media studies programs. So that's what I did. I signed up for this night program. I thought I was mostly taking in the audio production and I went off to be mm. an engineer afterwards. But what was really happening is I was reading a lot of Heidegger and like media theory and really being inundated in a world of conscious media making. Mm -hmm. I like, I've learned so much now about making a magazine and, and running a media company. And one thing I can say is that the majority of folks I've met who run a magazine are people who love design. That makes sense. Yeah. And I am not, like, I couldn't be farther from that person. So pairing, <laughs> like, no idea. So pairing up with my very first designer was instrumental in, I think, making TomTom Tom successful and subsequently working with only three designers in 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So that partnership is really, really important. Um, and I think I'm, definitely different than a lot of people who start magazines like a mm -hmm. very very different much like my reason for going to get a media degree it's just it's not as aligned as it looks mm -hmm. what yeah because on appearance it looks highly aligned <laughs> it's all intentional it is yeah not. but you were on more in the production tech end like that that end of it yes yeah I was 100% going to try to get into radio documentary or just producing music Make I did go into making sound for film post-production and oh, also cool. recording sound for film and then engineering live music. That was what I was doing all the way up before TomTom. Tom. And your thesis was in that area as well, I'm guessing? My thesis was all over the place. Weird <laughs> audio, sound art. I was making because, cool. you know, school lets you do the weird stuff. Yeah. And I got really weird. <laughs> and yeah, I, I produced some sound art after that too, but um, yeah, that that was just for fun because I was able to. So, did you have like a comfort level with tech prior to going into that, and and like experience with recording prior to that? I just really like audio. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I was self taught before that. I was programming drum machines. I was dating a engineer at the time a music engineer at the time so, mm -hmm. and I was in bands and I was you know really up for setting up sound I think as a drummer you sort of become I don't know if this is true or not but as a drummer I was the person who set up the PA in our practice space and owns the PA and 
Oh, so I see. Yeah. How to do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it all just felt like very natural to move into all these next stages mm-hmm. of it. And, and again, I'll repeat, I absolutely loved radio documentary. I was really into this American life. Had they accepted me for an internship, I think my entire life would have been different because I applied when I was like 19 or 20 to go to Chicago for an internship with them. And they, mm-hmm. didn't, they did not accept me. I would have been in Chicago. Ira Glass. Sure. Why? Why? No. no. Thank you, Ira. I mean. I mean, I mean thanks, Ira. <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> I love radio so much. Yeah, it's so good. I, I yeah, support it 100%. Right I, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, so you ran a space uh, for a number of years, right? What was your experience like with trying to make it as uh, intentionally like a safer space you know, as possible. That's a really good point. So I was living in Gainesville, Florida when I got my drum set and Gainesville was notorious and still is for being like a, a really great music town. Hot water music came from there. Less than Jake bitching all these cool bands. And, I saw um, bitchin play when I was probably, I don't know, 19 or something at a bowling alley in Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> oh, Forget it. Bitchin' was like my goal. I mean, yeah, yeah. I had a boy drummer, but everything else about the band, I was like, I'm, I just, I was drooling. Yeah, so good. Before I came out as a musician in Gainesville, I was booking at the Civic Media Center and then at Wayfarers. Oh, sorry, at Wayward Council so many years ago now. And so I had experience, firstly, at the CMC, the Civic Media Center, which was like an info, zine info shop, or like anarchist punks. And... Mm-hmm. And then, then Wayward Council was like the cool vinyl shop where all the cool kids hung out. And I was booking at both places and I could tell the difference. I knew that the substance of the music that we were booking at CMC, which includes Against Me, Laura Jane Grace's mm-hmm. band, Against Me, for instance, I was like booking there in the early days when it was just Laura Jane Grace and Kevin on the drums. Anyways, it was that versus like 12 Hour Turn or Hot Water Music at wayward council and i could tell the difference of cool versus the community and substance both had substance but anyways i'm trying to get i'm getting to my point of (laughs) what it's like to create a safe space and i think i had experience from then that i took to new york and in booking at the woodser which was my house and the show space there was five of us who booked there two of us were female identified so myself and natalia all of us musicians, all five of us musicians, three guys, two girls, myself and Natalia made it. We just, we made every single show either all female or mostly female mm-hmm. that we booked. Um, we had no other rules at the Woodser, but it was kind of coming out of, it was like pouring out of our DNA that Natalia and I were like doing this. And mm-hmm. it was like, we were doing it, not thinking about it. And later when I thought about it, I was like, right, we're doing this because we need it. And personally, we needed it. We needed it as a community. So I think that was like the early days of understanding what intentionality means. for me. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you were reverse engineering it sort of like by selecting the bands that you were selecting to play, you, you knew that they were going to be creating that space. A hundred percent. Like yeah. all girl bands in, on a lineup. Yeah. Or there was, yes, exactly. That was exactly what was happening. And I was also in a band by myself and doing rock camp all at the same time. Lots of stuff was, was like kind of congealing. Mm-hmm. So how does that experience of creating that space or like the idea of creating like a safer space translate to like how you create Tom Tom? There's actually a direct link. Like I think agency is such an important thing and feeling so much agency living in my house that over the weekend turned into a venue every weekend of our lives. Every Mm -hmm. one of us had a showcase for our own bands and were able to showcase other bands. It quickly grew into something much larger due to our friend Todd P who was throwing really Mm -hmm. big shows around the time he wanted to use our house um, every so often as a venue. So our house became known and all of a sudden there was a spotlight on our shows as much so as there was on the shows he was throwing in our house as the promoter. And I think that that is just the message I would get across to anyone who feels like they want to start anything or just feel confident is to just start doing the thing. We could have never known that we were going to have 450 people in our loft 
<laughs> for TV on the radio or White Magic mm-hmm. or Matt and Kim or whomever it was that we ended up booking. We would have never known that we didn't even necessarily want for that. We mm-hmm. wanted for community and space um, and ease of of playing. And it accidentally happened. Like, so the through line between the Woodser and Tom Tom, there's many, but one that I'll point out that feels to me to be the clearest is that I needed Tom Tom and I needed the Woodser. I needed a place to play. And so I made it in my living room. And then I mm-hmm. needed a place to see people like me deserve get the respect they deserve. And so I made it and no one ever knows what something's going to be. But if you work at it every day, it grows. It just naturally grows. Right. And, and so like, as you've grown the community of Tom, Tom, like that's just where, you know, it's happening because you made it happen. Right. One foot in front of the other. Like, like I said, I was not a designer. I was not a magazine person. Like I would, people like along the way might think, oh, she knows how to run a magazine. I don't. It's like, you know, but I didn't. Right, right. I really didn't. I put in the blood, sweat and tears. And now I do. And now I can share everything I know with you. But your journey will be your journey. And yeah. Right. It's like people see the finished product. Like like if somebody sees someone playing drums and they're like, oh, my God, they're so great. I could never do that. Yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, there's like this idea of perfectionism, like there is nothing that like it just sort of magically happened. But you have to you have to you have to do it wrong first before you do it right (laughs) yeah I'm okay with doing things I'm okay with just doing them in what I now understand to be is like beta yeah I'm like 100% beta everything I do nice (laughs) that's good I mean that you know I think that's like it's so healthy to feel like there's always progress happening right like you don't want to be stuck doing the same thing forever yeah and I'm open to be imperfections that's Mm -hmm. something I could say I I in fact invite imperfections I love handmade items I love Mm -hmm. I love seeing the mistake because it emphasizes what is working Mm -hmm. or what you're working on or where you're heading and that's exciting to me so where is Tom Tom heading? Great question. <laughs> um, all the dreams are that I find a business partner who wants to help grow this beast. I'd love to talk about all instruments someday, put mm. together a killer editorial team. Currently, we're working on Chop TV. I'd like to see more TV happening. Um, I have a idea around building a ritual for drummers which is like a workout mixed with rudiments mixed with a metronome and it's a daily practice that we all do Mm. together that's something we're working on under the scope of chops tv yeah i always dream big i want big things to happen i'd love to partner with people that's like my next move because everything i've done so far is like solo and i'm ready nice to branch out sometimes yes yeah (laughs) So you're talking about your editorial uh, process a little bit. What does that, what does it look like when you're deciding like with regard to like representation and everything or like even like the theme for a particular issue? How do you determine that? We have a code. It's in the front of our magazine and it's our, it's our mission and it's a filtration system. Um, Our goal has always been to cover drummers from all over the world of varying degrees of notoriety, body size, sexuality, skill level, race, creed, class in order to do that properly or with any sort of efficacy you have got you've got to put in place this mission and remind yourself and everyone who works with you about the mission and we still do it it's like a diligent practice it's been done since day one till now i'm pretty much the gatekeeper of content for the most part and i just make sure that we're not telling the same story over and over again and that's the way to make sure we're not doing it Um, So part one is having a mission. Part two is executing the mission. So you actually have to work hard to find people that are not right within your community, right outside your door or not your best friend's friend, which I think many media companies, when they grow lazy or if they have no intentionality of mission diversity, they will thousand percent feature their best friend's friend because it's there and Mm -hmm. it's not hard. I think what's much harder is finding people's finding people who do not have a voice or a platform or who are not in your community and reaching out to them and taking a chance. And we are constantly taking chances and it is always rewarding every single time. 
Um, currently with Chop CD, it's the same way. We I was on a drummer call today with a drummer from Belgium, another one from Paris, Philly, Brooklyn, and LA. And every week on Chop CD, we've got drummers from all over teaching all kinds of things, all ages. It's it's really fun. It's so fun to not to not see the same old, same old. I'm rambling, mm-hmm. but yeah. No, I mean, I, I I really appreciate the fact that you're talking about using your like mission and like your vision as a like uh, as a magazine, as a filter for that, because I feel like that's how it needs to happen. Right. Like and if you don't have that really documented in some way, it's not you can't, you don't have anything to grasp onto to be like, I don't know who what to do, where, where to go. It's like it's right there. I know what to do because it's right there as a guide. And that's kind of beautiful how it can work. Yeah. And I use it to hold the industry accountable as well which it's a craft and I've been working on it because not only is it something we do internally, but when we try to explain it externally to our sponsors, or if we try, if I try to incorporate in it in the contest I direct, or if I try to help someone else figure out how to diversify their content or their staff or their marketing, it's not simple or easy, but it's a conversation we need to be having. We need to have it over and over again. It iterates upon itself as we find new language for gender, as we find new gaps in representation. So it's work that is uncomfortable. It's not always done perfectly. It's essential. And I'm happy to put myself out there again in data form and just constantly say, I'm, work- I'm working on this. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Have you put any thought or work into your representation? And usually I'm pressing on the gas for these companies, telling them they are not doing a good job and giving them a couple of tools to diversify. They know I'm here for them if they have questions. And then that means I have to sharpen my tools as well all the time to make sure I can lead and direct these folks or point them to someone else who can. Mm-hmm. And what what does that like? When does that come up? Like, is it when you're talking? Like, are they coming specifically to you, or is it just like a conversation you happen to be having, or or are you like calling someone out specifically to be like, oh, I saw this thing, it was not good. I spent the first several years of Tom Tom calling people out directly and being very clear about our mission, and now mm-hmm. I'm someone that people come to in a lot of ways as a consultant, mm-hmm. and. And I'm going to help diversify their who they endorse, or I'm going to mm-hmm. help diversify their marketing campaign. I'll help mm-hmm. them put different drummers in their media. That's I'm very proud of that work too. Yeah, I woke up on Mother's Day, and the very th- first thing I saw when I opened up Instagram were two totally like tone deaf mother's day posts from different drum companies and, and it was specifically really? drum co- yeah i was just like oh god why? what were they do you remember one was and i think this one has gone around before was a zildjian ad that's like for their um the drums with the holes in them i don't remember what, what are those called i don't you know what i'm talking about yes the yeah like silent ones the silencer Silences. ones i don't know what yeah, you call them but like uh it was like a 50s style housewife ad and then a picture of that i know this ad. you know the one yeah and it was basically saying, like, you know, buy these silencer drum you know, symbol, symbols to make your mom happy well. <laughs> without acknowledging that your mom might also play drums. He's a drummer. Yeah. The other one was an ad that was like, it was just another. I've seen a, several of these similarly where it's like, uh, you know, a picture of a drum kit with some flowers on it saying like, Thanks to all the moms that supported us as we're, we were learning drums, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, uh, so that was the first thing. And I'm sure, you know, never, I'm sure would have occurred to them that this was an issue. They're just like, oh, this is, we're making this nice post. You know, it was just like so off the mark and it really bummed me out anyway. That was, uh, that's just like a recent thing that I thought about regard, oh, regarding drums. You. Yeah. Yeah. So if if you were speaking to folks in the music or industry, in the drum industry, about like how to make change specifically, what kinds of things do you tell them? So obviously you talked about representation and things like that, but like what how how what does that look like when you have that conversation? Well, the hardest part of this job is that and maybe this is like also one of the most rewarding parts is that I'm never speaking to a friend when I'm having these conversations. Mm. So there, it's really fleet. 
free flowing when you're speaking to a friend about something that's obviously tone deaf. When you're speaking to the person who created that ad or who approved the ad, uh, it becomes a really different conversation. So I'm very patient with people. I try to pick my words really carefully. I have off put several companies. I mean, they think that Tom Tom is like what? What do they call us? Edgy. We're the edgy drum and you know, <laughs> it's like for. And I can tell you why they call us. I can remember like the three things that they all talk about over and over again that makes us the edgy magazine. But in speaking with them, I have to be incredibly careful. But I also need to speak to the point. So I don't. I don't candy coat anything for them. I'm really clear with them, but I'm also very kind with them and patient. And I offer solutions um, for them that they can use. And I offer them me as a sounding board. And I say, and I'm honest with them. I say to them, please use me as your, you know, and I have a staff I can bounce stuff off of. I have friends. If you think, if you're not sure about something, send it our way and we'll let you know. Um, So they have to be open to this as well. And some of them are, and some of them aren't. And I have, luckily I have the, I have, because of the job I put myself in, I can reach out to them all the time and any time and say, I've got an idea for you. Let's get on the call. I can, I can write Zildjian tomorrow and say, this is a tone deaf ad. You really need to stop using it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have the person's email I can send that to. And, and that, that makes me feel very happy. I've done all my work so that I can do that. Whether they'll be receptive to it or not is a separate question, but it feels like the industry is trying. A lot of them are trying. Mm-hmm. It's just the gap of information, the gap of understanding. Being a, a man is almost, it's a huge roadblock. <laughs> God. You know, like being a, a white person, being a man. Yeah being a privileged person in terms of class, there's a lot of things that create blind spots for us all. And so Mm -hmm. it's working with those blind spots and trying to slowly uncover and show the full picture. You can't do it overnight necessarily for a lot of people. So it's like being there. Yeah, yeah. Who who seems to be trying? Like who's trying? So many companies are trying really hard, actually. Promark, Evans, Cesario, DW, LP, Gretsch, Gibraltar, Reverb, Roland Boss, you know, trying is an operative word. TRX, TRX, modern drummers trying right now. I'm using, I could put percentage marks next to the word trying and I should because now I feel like I've just given all these companies a big giant thumbs up. And honestly, some of them (laughs) deserve it. Some of them don't deserve it. Like we all have work to do. This industry has so much work to do. Mm -hmm. It's not their fault, but they, I've been trying to show them over the, last decade that they are the key holders they have they have entry access to all doors if they open them up for everyone everyone can walk in if they shut them unintentionally or intentionally they're shutting people out guitar Mm -hmm. center you know the larger your platform the more responsibility you have and these companies don't know that they have responsibility um so that yeah so they're there some of them are trying their efforts all of them can be increased and that's what i'm doing here so. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, how can listeners stay in contact with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, hear more about Tom Tom and keep up. Um, they can go to our Instagram, Tom Tom Mag. They can follow us, Tom Tom Mag, on Twitter and Facebook, YouTube, Tom Tom Magazine. They can go to tomtommag.com for web articles and information about female drummers around the world. They can go to shop.tomtommag.com if they want to wear a Tom Tom shirt. They can start their own mini revolution in their backyard and think about us along the way. That would be great. That's great. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yay! Thanks for having me. Kisses for me. I will. I will do that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Mindy rules. And that was a really, really fun and insightful conversation. I just really appreciate everything that she's done in the industry. And it's just so great to have her on. Thanks, Mindy. So Mindy spoke quite a bit about issues of representation, which are such a huge part of making change in the industry. As I had mentioned previously, it's also a component of rape culture, right? So related to this, I've been thinking a lot about the Bechdel test. 
And if you're not familiar with the Bechtel test, it is basically a test to determine gender representation in movies. And it was created by Alison Bechtel in her comic Dykes to Watch Out For in 1985. And it kind of jumped in popularity in the 90s and definitely in the 2000s. So this is basically how it works. In order to pass the test, a movie must have, first, two women who are named. They both have names, right? Second, the women must talk to each other. Third, they must talk to each other about something other than a man. Pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward, right? So since the early 2000s, the number of films that pass the test have hovered around about 55% with like small changes from year to year. And, you know, that sounds pretty good, right? Well, you know, one of the critiques of this test is that it sets the bar very, very low. And this does not account for things like plot line or anything else like that. And it could mean that the women are portrayed in like a highly stereotypical way, like talking about shopping. Like that's the thing that they're talking about together, for example. You know, the bar is low. So the Bechdel test has been adapted by many, many folks, either to focus on a particular field like theater or particular identities such as black women or LGBTQ folks. And, you know, in that spirit, I have adapted the test specifically to the music ear industry. And I will add that the main focus here is specifically on advertising and marketing, and I'm including in that social media. So here's how it works. So first of all, there is a woman. Second, she is presented as a capable musician. Third, if she is presented with an instrument that has a traditionally feminine aesthetic, so like pink or like with flowers or sparkles or something like that, there's a companion ad featuring a woman with an instrument that is not traditionally feminine and aesthetic. Fourth, if she's presented sexually, it is on her own terms, and there is a companion ad featuring a woman who is not presented sexually. Fifth, if she is a woman of color, she is not presented using racial stereotypes. Sixth, if she is a trans woman, her identity and pronouns are respected. And seventh, all sexual or offensive social media comments about her are promptly and appropriately addressed or deleted. So as you can see, this is somewhat more detailed than the original Bechtel test, so it raises the bar a little bit further. But I do want to add a couple of caveats, right? So, of course, the first item, there is a woman, means that this is an issue of a lack of representation. So ideally, the level of representation should be at least in line with, like, the population and preferably higher to make up for past lack of representation. So also, each one of these items obviously could go into much, much greater detail. You know, for example, there this is, like, no way that it addresses all intersectional oppressions that a woman might experience. And it also doesn't go into further detail on the two that are race and gender identity. And it also doesn't specifically cover experiences of non-binary folks. So I also want to note that it doesn't address issues like representation of artists on a company's roster or the number of artist models or signature pieces that they have, which is obviously important, but not within this particular test. So despite those caveats, I do think it is a potentially useful tool for companies to use in addressing the representation of women in their marketing and social media. One of the major issues with representation generally is due to the like small numbers of women represented, this representation is often highly, highly stereotyped and narrow. And this can then lead to a narrowing of expectations for women for their behavior and what they want to be in the world and in life with that representation. And that view can come from women themselves. And then it's also for, you know, folks who see them. This can be particularly troubling if the representation features stereotypes that are in line with rape culture, such as women only serving men or are supposed to be serving men or like being objectified or women of color being treated as exotic or hypersexualized. And, you know, while in, in no way the only cause this type of representation sets the stage for and like really sort of dangerously normalizes situations like what happened with Burger Records, right? It makes that that type of behavior seem normal. So if you have thoughts on the Music Gear Bechdel test feedback or anything else, this is first round. Please send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. 
you can reach me at midriffpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcast or share it with your friends. I would appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for listening.